Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alatur Shujin, your host and a chief medical resident here at Yukon. Before we start, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With that out of the way, I want to welcome you to this week's episode of Ambulatory Series, and this week, let's talk about kidney stones or nephrolithiasis. By better understanding pathophysiology and risk factors for kidney stones, we can better advise our patients on prevention strategies. Then, we will shift our discussion to management of an acute kidney stone and how to triage patients into inpatient versus outpatient management. To start off, let's go over epidemiology. Nephrolithiasis is common with 19% of males and 9% of females diagnosed with a kidney stone by the age of 70, based on the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Age seems to be a risk factor. For example, there is only 5.1% prevalence of nephrolithiasis in males ages 20 to 39 years, whereas 19.7% of males at the age of 80 suffer from kidney stones. Similar trend was observed in females. What is interesting is that the disease does not seem to have a gender preference in patients younger than 40. However, for patients who are over the age of 40, the incidence rate of kidney stones is significantly higher in males. Nephrolithiasis appears to be more common in white patient population, followed by Hispanic, and is least common in Black and Asian patients. Surprisingly, nephrolithiasis has a geographic preference as well, with more disease occurring in the southeastern United States. Reasons for that are not known. When it comes to the stones themselves, majority of them, 70-80%, to are made up of calcium oxalate, followed by calcium phosphate at 15%, uric acid stones at 8%, cysteine stones at 1-2%, and struvite stones at 1%. Risk factors for kidney stones can be subdivided into modifiable and non-modifiable. Non-modifiable risk factors include family history or genetic predisposition and are beyond the scope of our discussion for today. Let's focus on modifiable risk factors instead. Modifiable risk factors are either urine characteristics, dietary intake, as well as some medications. Let's go over them. High urine calcium has been observed in up to one half of idiopathic calcium stone formers. High urine calcium is defined as more than 250 mg per day in females and more than 300 mg per day in males. Some of the conditions that predispose to high urine calcium are primary hyperparathyroidism, distal renal tubular acidosis, increased bone resorption, increased intestinal absorption, increased renal losses. Next up is high urine oxalate, defined as more than 45 milligrams per day. That would be another modifiable risk factor. Common conditions responsible for high urine oxalate are low calcium diet, increased intestinal calcium absorption, and malabsorption syndromes such as small bowel disease, Crohn's disease, bariatric surgery, or cystic fibrosis. Moving on to low urine citrate. Hypocysteuria is defined as citrate excretion below 320 mg per day. 
and it can also precipitate kidney stones. It can happen with chronic diarrhea, renal tubular acidosis, administration of carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, ureteral diversion, as well as with some high-protein diets or diets low in fruits and vegetables. Next modifiable risk factor is high urine uric acid, defined as 24 hours urine uric acid excretion of more than 750 mg in females and more than 800 mg in males. Low urine volume has also been associated with kidney stone precipitation. Patients with history of kidney disease should be aiming for 2.5 liters of urine daily. Urine pH may also contribute to stone formation. When urine is persistently acidic, meaning pH less than 5.5, it favors uric acid precipitation. Alkaline urine, meaning pH 6.5 or higher, tends to promote calcium phosphate stone formation. Interestingly, calcium oxalate stone is not pH dependent. Moving on to dietary risk factors. First and foremost, decreased PO fluid intake can contribute to nephrolithiasis. What is interesting though, is that the type of fluid matters and not all fluids will have the same effect on stone precipitation. For example, Sugar-sweetened beverages are actually associated with an increased risk of developing kidney stones. Coffee and tea have in the past been considered to have high oxalate content, but some of the recent prospective studies actually suggest that higher tea and coffee intake can lower the risk of stone formation. Alcoholic beverages increase the risk of stone formation, however beer and wine were associated with a lower risk of nephrolithiasis. The theory is that it could be due to inhibition of ADH release. Orange juice adds potassium and citrate to diet, which ultimately lowers the risk of crystal formation. Cranberry juice, on the other hand, as a stone forming preventative measure, was not proved to be effective. Let's now talk about how electrolytes in one's diet can affect stone formation. Given calcium-based kidney stones are the most common, it's safe to assume that limiting calcium in one's diet may help reduce the risk of recurrence, but that's not the case. Diets low in calcium can actually precipitate calcium stones. Moving on to oxalate. Increased oxalate ingestion contained in various foods and vitamin C can lead to increased oxalate excretion. The challenge is to choose a low oxalate diet without restricting intake of fruits and vegetables. Next up, we have potassium. Higher potassium ingestion was linked to lower risk of stone formation primarily by reducing urinary calcium and increasing urinary citrate excretion. Foods rich in potassium are usually fruits and vegetables. Moving on to sodium. High dietary sodium increases urinary calcium and as a result can increase risk of stone formation. Lastly, increased animal protein intake has been associated with a higher rate of kidney stones. Important to note, however, that this was not observed with vegetable protein. Non-dairy animal protein leads to higher urine calcium excretion and lower urine citrate excretion, increasing the risk of kidney stones. Let's now move on to management. When a patient presents with a symptomatic ureteral stone, it is important to first manage their pain. For most patients with acute renal colic, 
NSAIDs should be used first. Opioids are reserved for patients with NSAIDs contraindication or severe renal impairment, or for those whose pain is not adequately controlled on NSAIDs. If patient is able to tolerate PO, has a well-controlled pain, and is febrile, outpatient management is appropriate. Patients should manage symptoms, strain urine, and be prescribed an alpha blocker if stone is more than 5 or less than or equal to 10 millimeters. If stone does not pass after 4 weeks, pain is persistent, or if stone is found to be more than 10 millimeters in size, urological evaluation would be indicated. If, on the other hand, patient is unable to tolerate PO, has poorly controlled pain, or has fever, admission to the hospital would be warranted. If there are signs of urinary tract infection, AKI, anuria, nausea, vomiting, prompt urology consultation would be indicated. If red flag symptoms are not present, patient symptoms should be managed, urine strained, and an alpha blocker should be given for stone more than 5 millimeters or less than or equal to 10 millimeters. Of note, other agents such as nifedipine, phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitor, can all be used to facilitate stone passage. Now, what imaging modality do we use? If your patient is pregnant, you have to use an ultrasound of kidney and bladder. If your patient is not pregnant, CT is the imaging of choice. The type of CT will be weight-based. If your patient has BMI of more than 30 kilograms per square meter, standard dose CT is indicated. If BMI is less than 30, low dose can be used. If CT is unavailable, you can still do ultrasound of kidney and bladder with or without abdominal radiography. Abdominal radiography, IV pyelography, MRI, and digital tomosynthesis are all less frequently used. They can be utilized as follow-up studies and are rarely used as initial diagnostics. Stone passage needs to be confirmed. Resolution of pain is not a good predictor of stone clearance. Additional radiation exposure with a repeat CT scan should be avoided, and currently experts recommend digital tomosynthesis coupled with an ultrasound to confirm stone passage. To wrap up today's episode, let's go to our takeaway points. Kidney stones are common and have a higher prevalence among older white males and have a geographic preference for the southeastern United States. Majority of the stones are made up of calcium oxalate, followed by calcium phosphate, uric acid, cysteine, and struvite stones. The recurrence rate of kidney stones is quite high, but there are a lot of modifiable risk factors that are crucial we educate our patients about. Some of the modifiable risk factors include decreased fluid intake, but remember the types of fluid matter, low calcium diets, increased oxalate and vitamin C ingestion, diets low in potassium, high dietary sodium, high non-dairy animal protein. Assess patient's pain and escalate pain management as needed starting with NSAIDs. Admit patients at the hospital for poor pain control, inability to tolerate PO or fever. Stones that are 5 to 10 millimeters may need an alpha blocker calcium channel blocker, phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor to facilitate passage. If stone does not pass after four weeks, 
or if stone is more than 10 millimeters, consult urology. CT abdomen remains the modality of choice for initial image unless your patient is pregnant. Follow-up imaging to confirm stone passage can be done with digital tomosynthesis coupled with an ultrasound. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you in our next